0: influential ministers and leading CEOs to make new connections, gain unique insights, and uncover valuable opportunities in one of the world's most rapidly rising regions. Request your invite for this exclusive event at com. From Bloomberg
1: News and iHeartRadio, it's The Big Take. I'm Wes Kosova. Today, how's all that money Joe Biden got for green projects being spent?
2: Democrats are claiming victory this weekend after finally getting their health care and climate package through the Senate.
3: Known as the Inflation Reduction Act, the bill aims to reduce inflation while encouraging greener industries to develop.
1: It was a big deal last summer when the president signed the Inflation Reduction Act, which includes hundreds of billions of dollars to slow climate change and speed America's transition to clean energy. Less than a year later, that money is already being put to use in all kinds of ways, but you might not be able to see it unless you know where to look. Fortunately, I'm here with a couple of people who do. Climate reporter Eric Rostin. The
4: wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine and we need a place to park our electrons when we're not
1: using them. And senior reporter Akshat Rati, who's also host of our brilliant sister podcast, Zero. It's all about the tactics and
3: technologies taking us to a world of zero emissions. There are these sets of technologies which you can call as enabling technologies, which work across multiple different economic sectors. Hydrogen is one of them, batteries is the other.
1: And a little later in the show, Bloomberg Green reporter Zara Hirji tells us how this massive cash infusion is starting to appear in our day-to-day lives.
2: In the coming year, there's just going to be more and more money available that people can claim to help make the transition in their own homes, in their own cars, in their own lives to a cleaner, more climate-friendly life.
1: Eric, we all heard a lot about the Inflation Reduction Act, when it was passed, it was a really big deal. And we haven't heard that much about it since then. Can you tell us what exactly all that money is now going for?
4: There's two baskets of things. One of them is probably more familiar than the other. The main association people will have with clean energy is wind power, solar power, onshore wind, offshore wind electric vehicles that line the streets in some parts of the country. And there's a lot of money and a lot of incentive now for states and communities and people to go out and buy those things and deploy them even at a faster rate than they already have been. Another big part of it is the up-and-coming technologies that people are less familiar with. These are infrastructure technologies, things that if, if this is all successful, we may never see them because they're just going to keep the lights on but just do it with different kinds of technology. And there's some really exciting, really science fiction-like technologies that are
1: out there starting to thrive Actually, one thing you write is that, like Eric said, wind and solar, these are things that have been around for a long time. But now the Inflation Reduction Act is really funding things that are much more difficult, kind of like the hard part.
3: Absolutely. I mean, we think about the emissions pie. Only about a quarter of emissions, roughly speaking, comes from electricity. The other three quarters comes from other stuff. So you've got another quarter from transport, another quarter from industry, and another quarter from agriculture. Now, the actual numbers may vary from country to country, but you know that's a really good shortcut to have in the brain. So what do you do with the other three quarters? And that's where the hard stuff comes in. Pick industry, cement, just the chemical process itself produces carbon dioxide, regardless of whether you use fossil fuels or not. And so, In the Inflation Reduction Act, there are incentives for a technology called carbon capture. And we've had that technology for quite some time, but it just never got the momentum that it has got under the Inflation Reduction Act. And that's going to make a real difference in the emissions profile we're going to see in the coming future, because that's the emissions profile which we've not been able to really reduce.
1: Eric, how is the Inflation Reduction Act doing what Akshat is saying? How is that money helping this?
4: In the most direct way, it is backing companies and initiatives and research in some of these very difficult but extremely necessary technologies, just like the one that Akshat described. But there's a fuzzier and possibly more important effect of all this as well, and that is the largest economy in the world saying, we are open for business. Like, this is what we're going to do for a living now. And the soft power of the mere existence of a bill like this will have,
1: you know, incalculable influence. Akshay, you mentioned concrete as one concrete example of a way that you can reduce the carbon effects of a really important component of just building. What are some of the other hard things that the Inflation
3: Reduction Act is trying to fund? Another one is hydrogen. This is sort of the fuel of the future that's been talked about for quite some time. It's a fuel that burns without producing any carbon dioxide emissions, if you're able to produce hydrogen without any carbon dioxide emissions attached to it. So far that hydrogen came from natural gas, which is where the carbon dioxide problem comes from. But if you make it from water and renewable electricity, you get this fuel that can be used for lots and lots of things. So we're talking making steel green, we're talking making fuels like biofuels without the use of carbon from fossil fuels. We're talking being able to store renewable electricity in the form of hydrogen just in tanks, so that you can burn it when you really need it. There are these sets of technologies which you can call as enabling technologies, which work across multiple different economic sectors. Hydrogen is one of them, batteries is the other. And that is also getting a real boost not just the traditional lithium-ion batteries that we know about but also unconventional ideas which are going to be necessary because we need lots and lots of cheap batteries to be able to build the grid of the future. Think about the grid as a series of pipes without a tank which is weird because that means if anybody turns their tap on somebody has to turn a pump on to make sure that the water reaches them at that instant.
4: The idea that we've never really been able to store electricity is actually, we could have used it, you know? Every summer, the hottest week of the year, people inevitably use more air conditioning, and the strain on the electrical grid on the power plants is tremendous. And so what happens is we have special power plants that we turn on only for like the hottest weeks of the year, and they're dormant basically the rest of the year. So, like, that's how we've been doing storage, right? We've been storing entire electricity production facilities. So batteries may have been useful, you know, at some point before now, but now they are absolutely instrumental. The wind doesn't always blow and the sun doesn't always shine. And we need a place to park our electrons when we're not using them.
3: And so... To be able to do that, you need batteries, but those batteries currently are lithium ion batteries, and these are great. They work in electric cars, they might even power flying cars, but to be able to use them on the grid is sort of wasting a really valuable resource, and your electricity will get very expensive if you use too much of it. So under the Inflation Reduction Act, there are incentives for these new age technologies, one of which is this company called Form Energy which is building a $760 million factory to build a battery made from rust. Which may sound weird, but actually, rust itself, the process of making it, going from iron to rust, is a chemical reaction that produces energy. Form Energy has figured out how to use that energy in the form of electricity. And once you do that, you get a battery where the process of rusting creates energy. And when you want to store energy, you just unrust the battery back to iron. And they have gone on and built this mega factory because there is just so much demand for their product.
1: And you talked to Form Energy's CEO, Matteo Jaramillo, on your podcast, Zero. Here's a bit of what he had to say about the project. It'll look like shipping containers sitting in in a field. Uh, That's really what it will look like. Not exactly sort of a charismatic megafauna power project, if you will. (laughs) But in order to get to the cost targets that we're going after, sort of can't afford to look like much. Eric, you write that the money the government spends is then multiplied when companies use it to develop these technologies. So the government dollars are actually worth more. Yeah, potentially a
4: lot more. The $374 billion estimate that we've been kicking around since August is limited in that it doesn't take into account what the rest of the economy may do. It's worth taking a step back for a second. And like governments, the U.S. government in particular, tends not to lead national conversations, right? And one thing that's laid the groundwork for the IRA is the vast number of people and parts of the economy that are already trying to do these things. So the IRA is met by people who were expecting it or at least wishing for it. And what that means is like that original $374 billion that the Congressional Budget Office projected that this legislation would be worth is going to be met in the real world by armies of people who are ready to maximize its potential. And Credit Suisse has looked at the same numbers and has concluded that the actual amount that the U.S. government is going to spend is considerably more, possibly twice as much. And then they took it a step further and found that the private sector is likely to spend another $800 billion or so Because these provisions send a message of confidence to the whole economy that the U.S. government is behind these initiatives in dollar and in spirit.
1: When we come back, how climate tech is fast becoming one of the engines powering the U.S. economy. Akshat, right before the break, Eric was talking about how the U.S. spending this money signals to private industry that this is a good bet, that there is a bright future here and it's backed up by the U.S. And really, the Inflation Reduction Act wasn't the first money being spent on this. They were really kind of following on a movement that had picked up a lot of speed
3: already absolutely true. If anything, the U.S. is late to the party. The real front runner on spending on clean energy is China, which might seem odd given it is also the largest emitter by a massive margin. But China over the past decade has taken a lead on pretty much every green technology. Solar, wind, batteries, of course, but also More recently, they have built a lot of hydrogen, they've built a lot of electric cars, they're exporting those electric cars outside of China in large numbers now. And then Europe took notice of what China is doing and jumped in with what is called the Green Deal, which, you know, in the European version takes a few years because it's a bureaucratic nightmare to get legislation through. But it's another 500 billion euros worth of spending that is coming to support all these kinds of technologies, not just the old renewable technologies, but also these advanced carbon-free technologies that are going to be necessary to meet climate goals. And just to take a step back, all of this is happening because of the Paris Climate Agreement, which set the goal for the world to reduce emissions and to do it at pace. And all the countries have agreed to do it. Now we are finally starting to see after eight years that that money is going toward the thing that needs to be done.
4: It's not just that China is the leader who we're trying to catch up to. China is 80 to 90 percent of this entire conversation. They make Something like 90% of the anodes that go into lithium batteries. They make 75% of other key battery components. They make 80 to 90% of the materials involved in solar.
3: So China is making, as Eric said, all these green technologies and at scale. What Europe and America need to do is really catch up and make sure that the jobs of the future aren't lost all to China. They need to build local capacities for these green technologies. And we've entered this period of competition among the large powers on green stuff, which hadn't happened so far. You know, there was this warm, fuzzy feeling around the Paris Agreement that we will all come together and work together. And that's great. And that needs to happen. But the world that we are used to is a world of competition. And with these big, large legislations, both in America and Europe, that competition has become real.
1: And Eric, we've seen a huge amount of venture capital flowing into this space. Can you describe what it's going to and who's behind it? Yes, there's
4: just, uh, I don't even know what the right metaphor is an archipelago a you know a cheering section a mob of venture capitalists who some of them are new some of them are you know the oldest hands in silicon valley and they have very much internalized what climate change must mean for investment patterns and for the development of new technologies so you have everyone from kleiner perkins probably, you know, one of the most famous VC firms that was in at the beginning of Google and uh, much of the rest of the tech economy. You know, you also have people who have been working on this for many years, often alone and without much fanfare. Energy Impact Partners is one of those who have emerged as a leader in the space because the space itself is finally reaching the big time. Last year, there was $70 billion in... VC investment in the climate tech space. And we expect to see that only rise in the next few years.
3: And it's also happening at a time when VC investments in all types of other tech is actually declining. So climate tech has emerged as this continuing to be the bullish bet in an economy, which is generally turning sour.
4: This is not necessarily software that we're dealing with. These are science experiments and infrastructure that require a level of scientific savvy and investigation that is not typical to the Silicon Valley software economy. And it's just very interesting to watch all these smart firms bulk up with the expertise they need to make these investments, making sure they're picking out products
1: that really have a potential to change the world. Akshat, that's a really interesting point. When you talk to the people who are behind this money, what are they saying? Like, Why are they going all in on decarbonization?
3: We think of the climate tech economy as a climate tech economy, but actually what these VC firms are betting is that it's the new economy. That's how the world is going to be run in the future. Just think of energy, the fossil fuel industry, which is how most of our energy came from, still does. It's a $10 trillion worth of industry. And depending on your year when oil prices are high, probably a $20 trillion economy. That is the kind of potential that these new technologies are going to fill up. And that's a big honeypot for investors who can think smart, bet the right ideas, and build the sort of companies that are going to replace the Exxon mobiles of the world. The way VC makes money is that they make many, many bets, and most of them are going to fail. But there'll be these spectacular victories which are going to make for much of the return of how the fund is created. But in doing so, in those failures, they do advance technologies, which eventually will pay off. And so the VC money is a crucial aspect of how to develop a new technology. But obviously, these are funds that are looking for returns and they are making bets that will generate returns.
4: It's worth taking a step back and recognizing something fundamental. There's just no getting around that the economy developed with certain stable expectations of what local temperatures are and where shorelines are and how powerful storms get. And so, yes, there is that saving the world mentality. Yes, it's the right thing to do. There's just more and more recognition that we need to change the economy to fit the world. At this point, it's less let's save the world and let's save the economy. Because the world is going to keep on changing and uh, we need an economy that can thrive under new circumstances. The good news is that we know how to do it, you know? I mean, watching this space for a long time, as Akshat and I have, it seemed for a long time that we need a million miracles to beat climate change. And the astounding thing is that like, just in the last five years, we got like a thousand of them, you know, and like not even everybody's working on it yet. So there is real momentum here and real optimism that we can make a dent in this global problem. And since we know what to do, we know what the technologies are that we need, all we need to do is the work. That's what climate change comes down to now. Is like, you want a thriving economy? This is what we got to do. We got to replace a billion machines in 30 years. So all of this complexity we're talking about—the changing markets, the government policies, the money that's coming from all sectors—it just comes down to this: all we need to do is the work.
1: Akshat, Eric, thanks so much for coming on the show. Thank you. Thanks for having us. After the break, how this surge of government cash for clean tech may already be working its way into your life. The Inflation Reduction Act also has a lot of money in it that will more directly apply to consumers. I asked Bloomberg Green reporter Zara Hirji to tell us what we'll start seeing from it in our everyday lives.
2: One really good place to start is with electric vehicles. This guidance just got released on exactly what type of electric car can qualify for these new $7,500 tax credits. And we knew once the climate bill was signed into law last year that these new electric vehicles, some of them, but not all of them, would qualify. So over time, the number of electric vehicles that can qualify for this type of tax credit, because this isn't the only year that it will be in effect, will ideally go up as more processes like manufacturers change their supply chain. But right now it is a pretty limited scope. It's only 10 electric vehicles.
1: It's not just that the administration wants these manufacturers to make electric vehicles in America, right? It's that they're creating new standards that make it less desirable to build gasoline-powered cars so that the automakers transition to making electric cars instead.
2: Yeah, a big part of this administration is trying to shift our economy to rely on these kind of greener technologies as well as making it easier and more affordable for people then to be able to buy and partake in those technologies. So the electric vehicle tax credits are just one of the tax credits or kind of consumer incentives that are built into the IRA. There are a host of them. There are gonna be rebates and other kind of ways in which you can directly see a reduction on your bills for purchasing, say, a heat pump, which is an electric way of heating or cooling your home, or making other upgrades to your home that make it more energy efficient. We don't have all of the guidances yet on exactly what will qualify and how much money you can get, because it's a federal law, but some of this money is gonna be distributed at the state level, and we're waiting on the state to kind of come out with those guidance. But in the coming year, there's just going to be more and more money available that people can claim to help make the transition in their own homes, in their own cars, in their own lives to a cleaner, more climate-friendly life. The White House has set this highly ambitious goal of having electric vehicles make up 50% of new car sales by 2030. Now, here at Bloomberg, we have this research arm, BNEF, that tracks some of these trends. And even the most aggressive transition that they've seen doesn't necessarily hit that. This is even more ambitious than what people are projecting could happen. So it's a bold goal, but they're also taking so many steps to do that. And the tax credits are just one small slice of that. In addition, they also are proposing new regulations on tailpipe emissions, basically saying that in the future, new cars that hit the road have to have a lot less pollution coming out of their tailpipes than they do today. And people are saying that the only way to hit these new standards, which admittedly aren't law yet, they're proposals, would be to have a mostly electric vehicle fleet. So basically, We need electric vehicles. This is just one more tool in which they're pushing everyone from the car manufacturers to consumers to switch to electric vehicles.
1: You mentioned that how we heat our homes is going to change. Also under this plan, can you talk about why that is?
2: Yeah, so when we think about needing to bring down our emissions, that is really tied to our use of fossil fuels. And we use fossil fuels in pretty much every way we live. And a big part of that is at home, in heating our home and the type of equipment that we use in our home. Now, I live in a home that is powered by natural gas. That's what heats and cools my home. And a lot of people in America do. But there are ways to cool and heat your home electrically. And one of those tools is a heat pump which is not a new technology, it's something that's been getting a lot of attention. So to help heat the home, it has technology that takes heat from the atmosphere as warm air and then naturally moves it towards the cold parts in your home. And then it can actually do the opposite if you're using it for cooling your home as well. And the nice thing about a heat pump is it's actually really efficient. So in the long run, it could save you money now there are high upfront costs it's not a cheap technology but again that's one of the things that this new climate law is hoping to address is by offering some incentives financial incentives to help people feel like it is something that they can afford to do so already there is a $2000 tax credit for purchasing a heat pump in your home And then there are going to be additional money that will be delegated out through the state that, again, we're waiting on some state-level guidance that should be ready by the end of 2024. That will just be another pocket of money to help support that transition.
1: Uh, Let me ask you about one other thing that we're going to be seeing. It's also another vehicle, and that's school buses.
2: Yes. So the thing about both The 2021 infrastructure law and then also the 2022 climate law is they're pushing transformation across the entire transportation sector. And in some cases, the two bills are working together with overlapping sets of money to really push this transformational change. One case is this school bus, you can think about the iconic yellow school bus. Most of the school buses on the road today are run on diesel, and that's a fossil fuel. And also it creates air emissions and pollution that pose a threat to kids' health. In the 2021 infrastructure law, kind of delegated $5 billion to the EPA to kind of prop up a new clean school bus program. Now, that program doesn't just fund electric vehicles, but it's sort of turning out to be that case in reality. So last year, they offered their first close to a billion dollars in rebates to schools looking to update their school bus fleet. And most of those applications were to purchase new electric school buses, which, again, are just a much cleaner, quieter and healthier type of transportation to take kids of all ages to school. And then on top of that, you're then going to have the IRA with its various electric vehicle tax credits and talking to people making school buses and working to help kind of get electric school buses out into the world. They think that they will be able to take advantage of those tax credits as well. And that's a big deal because an electric school bus is can be up to $400,000, if not more, and that could be four times as expensive as a diesel school bus. This will help school districts be able to start to afford adding electric school buses into their fleet.
1: Zara, thanks for coming on the show.
2: Thanks so much for having me.
1: Thanks for listening to us here at The Big Take. It's a daily podcast from Bloomberg and iHeartRadio. For more shows from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen. And we'd love to hear from you. Email us questions or comments to Take at bloomberg.net. The supervising producer of The Big Take is Vicki Virgolina. Our senior producer is Catherine Fink. Our producers are Michael Falero and Mo Barrow. Rafael M. Seeley is our engineer. Our original music was composed by Leo Sidrin. I'm Wes Kosova. We'll be back tomorrow with another Big Take.
0: The countdown has begun. From May 14th to 16th, a thousand global leaders will gather in Doha for the Carter Economic Forum powered by Bloomberg.